miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge sits Sea Ranch, a collection of homes where the clean lines of modernist architecture meet the dramatic scenery of Sonoma County's northwestern edge. Not far to its south is Fort Ross, the farthest flung of Tsarist Russia's Kreposts, a fortress that stood at the heart of California's most unlikely European colony. Much further to the north is Sumeg State Park, where a recreated Yurok village showcases the Californian take on two hallmarks of the indigenous northwest coast woodworking tradition, plank houses and dugout canoes, Olwayach in Yurok. At first glance, these three places seem very different from each other, each representing a different culture that is adapted to life along this remote coastline. But a closer look reveals some surprising similarities. All three of these communities, situated along the rugged coastline where the California Current first enters the waters of the state which gives it its name, are there because of the sea. The designers of Sea Ranch's first buildings, which began to open in 1964, wanted to preserve the site's mix of redwood forests, coastal prairies, and wave-battered bluffs and to develop an architecture that harmonized with it. Russia established Fort Ross far south of their Alaskan colonies for a more practical reason to capitalize on the globe-spanning trade in the dense, luxurious fur of sea otters that flourished in the cold oceans off California. And like tribes up and down the northwest coast, Yurok society has always functioned with an eye to the sea, their single most important source of food and raw materials, a big reason why canoes like the Olwayach are among the finest ever built. All three sites show how closely humans have always been tied to the ocean here, but they also illustrate a much broader truth about this coastline that the seemingly sharp line between sea and shore is actually very blurry. This truth is most clearly revealed not by the design of buildings or by how they're used, but by what they're made from. Sea Ranch, Fort Ross, and Sumeg Village not only share maritime ties, but a common building material. That material, a particularly colorful and pliable yet resilient wood, comes from the North Coast's iconic plant. It's a species that also forms the foundation of the monumental forests that grow here, that gives this part of California its common name, and that exists here precisely because of the fuzzy boundary between land and sea. Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and this is the second part of a multi-episode journey along the flow of the California Current, from the far north of the Golden State to the Santa Barbara area. If you haven't heard the Bay Area-focused introduction to this series from a couple of weeks ago, I'd recommend going back and listening to it now. After learning about the Current and why it exists, join me back here to explore the ways in which it affects life and landscapes along the coast. We'll start with the easiest impacts to observe, which also happen to be the most unexpected. This is because we tend to think of ocean and shore as polar opposites, when in fact the two interact in so many ways that, at least in California, the coast is best thought of as a wide transition zone rather than a single line. We'll spend today wandering through this gray area between land and sea, beginning with the most spectacular land-based product of the California current, the redwood forests. Nothing I say here can do justice to the experience of standing in the midst of a redwood grove. These trees, the tallest on our planet, grow only along a narrow stretch of coast from Big Sur up to the southwestern corner of Oregon, 
and it's only in the far northern reaches of their range that large concentrations of old-growth redwoods remain. It's the size of these titans that brings tourists to what's often called the Redwood Coast, but if you give yourself the time to get off the main roads and walk through the forests, you'll see that there's much more to them than just the gigantic trees that make them up. The best place to do this is in the UNESCO World Heritage Site along the state's northernmost coast consisting of Redwood National Park and a trio of state parks, Jedediah Smith, Del Norte Coast, and Prairie Creek. In places, old-growth trees go right down to the roadside, but even a relatively short day hike can take you into more remote wilderness areas. If you're able to take one of these hikes, you'll find yourself in the midst of an overwhelming ecosystem. Once you're accustomed to the huge size of the redwoods themselves, you start to recognize that they're just the tip of the floral iceberg. The forest floor around you may be blanketed in ferns, salal, or oxalis, and while most of the trees around you will be redwoods, you'll begin to notice Douglas firs, Sitka spruce, and bigleaf maple as well. Depending on the time of year, you may see the colorful flowers of trilliums, rhododendrons, or any number of other shade-loving species. Fungi, which decompose dead or dying plant matter, can be harder to spot, but you'll see evidence of them in the form of mushrooms and of lichens, the result of a symbiosis between fungus and algae. Animals roam these woods as well, and while you'd have to be extremely lucky to spot rare or elusive species, like spotted owls or cougars, you're certain to encounter others. Some, like the northern pygmy owl you can hear in the recording I made during my trip to Del Norte Coast, you're much more likely to hear than see. But others, from yellow banana slugs to bright blue Stellar's jays to huge Roosevelt elk, are far more likely to cross your path. Regardless of which species you see or hear, one thing will be abundantly clear. That in these extravagantly rich forests, you're surrounded by life, and in one way or another, all that life interacts with, and more often than not relies on, redwoods. This isn't the first time Voyages has delved into the complex interrelationships in conifer woods. Check out the Season 1 series on Northwest Forest for a deep dive into the subject. Suffice it to say, for this episode, the list of species that makes use of redwoods for food, nesting sites, hunting platforms, shelter, shade, or even just a place to put down roots encompasses pretty much every animal, plant, and fungus found here. The redwoods themselves interact with these other species in turn, as well as with factors such as the region's steep hills and complex bedrock and soils. But perhaps most importantly, they depend on the wet climate along the coast. All trees need water to survive, and trees the size of redwoods need vast amounts of it. Further to the north, from Oregon to Alaska, much of this water falls as rain. And as you may be able to hear in my recording, plenty of rain can fall along the redwood coast during the cooler months. But this is California, and a balmier climate than the Golden State's northern neighbors could spell trouble during a dry summer. This is where the California current comes in. Just as in the Bay Area, cold water direct from the North Pacific interacts with warm summer air to form dense fog banks. As the fog moves inland with the prevailing winds, much of the water contained in it is absorbed by the soils, wetlands, and streams of the Redwood Coast, eventually making its way into plant roots. But if you're in a redwood grove, you can easily appreciate a feature of these giants that ties them especially closely to the sea and the fog it produces. Scattered all over, you'll see fallen branches covered in needles that may seem surprisingly small in comparison to their pine or fir relatives. But these needles are extremely efficient at drawing water from fog, meaning that redwoods could not only take up water through their roots, as most plants do, but are uniquely suited for capturing it from the air as well. Allowing them to stay hydrated even during dry summers 
This may be the most important connection these land-based plants have to the sea, but there are other, more direct ties between forest and ocean along the Redwood Coast. Redwood National Park is famous for its forests, not its vistas, but at the end of a narrow, twisting, rutted road out of the tiny community of Requa, you can find a viewpoint that holds its own against the best of the national park system. High on a cliff above the Pacific, it looks down on the huge, ever-shifting sandbar at the mouth of Northern California's greatest river. The Klamath begins in southern Oregon, flows south past Mount Shasta, and takes an enormous U-turn before entering the ocean at Requa. It picks up huge amounts of water traveling across this rain, snow, and fog-rich landscape, meaning that it discharges over 17,000 cubic feet of water each second at the sandbar, only slightly less than California's other great rivers, the Sacramento and Colorado, despite each of these being significantly longer. For animals able to swim against the current, this makes it a watery highway and a major link between land and sea. Some species only navigate this highway for its first few miles, such as California sea lions, whose bark is a familiar sound from Alaska to Mexico, and who frequently swim into fresh water in search of food. For other species, the journey inland is much, much longer. Among these are three species of salmon and trout, Chinook, Coho, and Steelhead, that live most of their lives in the Pacific, but that return to the Klamath and its tributaries to spawn. This movement of a normally marine fish into fresh water is one of the processes that blurs the line between land and sea along the Redwood Coast. All three species are predators, sitting near the top of the oceanic food web and feeding on smaller fish rich in nutrients, such as phosphate, that are common at sea but rare on land. All three act as reservoirs for these nutrients when they undertake their epic migration. In the case of steelhead, that reservoir may return to its source again and again, as they can spawn multiple times over the course of their lives. The two salmon species, however, breed just once and then die, releasing their nutrients into the rivers and soils of the Klamath Basin. Again, check out Voyage's Season 1 series on Northwest Forests for more on how salmon tie trees to the ocean. Salmon and trout are profoundly important ecologically, economically, and culturally. The Yurok and other regional tribes have always appreciated this importance, and have spearheaded recent efforts to remove old and ineffectual dams on the Klamath to open up blocked-off spawning streams. But other species are also important links in the chain between sea and shore. One especially important fish gave its name to the Eel River, which flows through the dense forests of Humboldt Redwoods State Park. In fact, lampreys aren't eels at all, but offshoots of a much more ancient line of fish though they have independently evolved an eel-like body. Much maligned across the world thanks to their jawless mouths, parasitic habits, and their effectiveness at invading habitats in which they're not native, in places where they are native, lampreys should be held in the same high regard as salmon, as, in fact, the Pacific lamprey is among the tribes of the Northwest. Like salmon, lampreys live in the ocean and return to rivers like the eel to spawn and die. And just like salmon, when they do so, they act as invaluable nutrient sources for redwood forests and the organisms that inhabit them. For salmon, trout, and lampreys alike, the spawning migration is an annual, or in some cases, seasonal event. But animals that don't depend on rivers to move between marine and terrestrial environments can make the journey much more frequently. Take the marbled murrelet, a small seabird related to puffins. 
Like its relatives, it feeds on fish in the shallow waters of the Pacific. Unlike them, it prefers to nest in old-growth forests rather than barren clifftops. This makes the Redwood Coast one of the most important murrelet nesting areas in the world, and at dawn and dusk adult birds emerge from the woods to feed in the ocean. This twice-daily transition between land and sea is much closer to what most coastal species experience, but for the vast majority of these, the timing of the transition is governed not by the rising and setting of the sun, but the cycles of the moon and the ebbing and flowing of tides it causes. Waves, like those you can hear in the background lapping at the shores of a sea ranch beach, are a constant along the coast. The rhythmic approach of tall wave crests followed by low wave troughs shapes the shoreline in many ways, particularly through erosion, which under sufficiently stormy conditions you can watch happening in real time. But these wind-powered waves aren't the only ones at work here. As the moon orbits our planet, it exerts a gravitational pull on its oceans, leading to enormous, slow-moving waves that we know as tides. When a wave crest nears shore, waters rise and we experience a high tide. When it's replaced by a trough, we get retreating water and a low tide. This means that every headland, beach, and pier along this, and any other, coast is variously exposed to air and salt water, usually on a twice-a-day cycle. Because marine plants and algae need sunlight to survive, these species tend to cluster in shallow water, where they may also have access to nutrients draining off the land into the ocean. As we'll see in the next episode, where seaweed and seagrasses grow, animals follow, meaning that biodiversity is high in shallow seas, exposing many species to the rise and fall of the tides. Life in this no-man's land can be tough. Organisms here must be able to deal with hours of exposure to dry air, they need to withstand near-constant battering by waves, large fluctuations in temperature, and they have to cope with marine predators like seals and sharks as well as land-based ones such as gulls or raccoons. How organisms respond to these pressures depends very much on the type of shoreline you're looking at. Along the north coast, cliffs and beaches of cobbles or boulders are common, meaning that you'll see lots of rocky shores as you parallel the California current. Salt Point State Park near Fort Ross is one of the best places to appreciate the opportunities afforded by rocks. Rocks give animals, plants, and algae something to hold on to, protecting them from being scattered far and wide by waves and wind. Many of the animals found here are what ecologists call sessile, meaning that they remain affixed to a surface for much of their life. Seaweeds and grasses also find better purchase here than in other areas. Rocks also provide nooks and crannies for hiding from predators and, potentially, for seeking out shade at low tide. Still, only the hardiest species can withstand the highest points on the beach, which are exposed to the air for most of the day. This means that, as you start moving towards the water, rather than crossing any clear line distinguishing land from sea, you'll start to see more and more marine organisms. On my trip down the coast, this transition was most spectacularly illustrated at Gersel Cove at Salt Point a marine protected area literally crawling with intertidal organisms. High up on the rocks, you'll see communities made up almost entirely of barnacles, sessile relatives of crabs and shrimp that can hole up inside their extremely tough shells. Further down, you'll start seeing sea anemones, which can fold up when out of water, and limpets, snails that, like barnacles, 
can hunker down in their broad shells. In this same zone, you'll see your first marine algae, generally low-lying types that encrust rocks. Leafier species would be torn to shreds by waves. Algae skyrocket in abundance as you reach the zone of the beach that generally remains underwater, where you'll start to see larger species with bigger fronds, seaweeds. You also may spot patches of surf grass, which, unlike algae, whose ancestors never left the ocean, is descended from a land-living plant that readapted to live in saltwater. This is also where animal life becomes much more abundant, larger, and showier. At especially low tides, depressions in the rocks remain filled with water, creating tide pools. These watery refuges are reliably the best place on the shore to see marine life, and as a connoisseur of tide pools, I can attest that those among the boulders of Gersel Cove are truly world-class. If my trip was any indication, even a short visit should be enough to spot a huge cross-section of animal life, from colorful shore crabs, to predatory sea stars, to huge gumboot chitons, to camouflage sculpins, to hordes of purple sea urchins. Though more on why the presence of that last animal may not be entirely positive news in a later episode. In that same episode, we'll talk about abalones and why these once common giant snails with shiny shells are now a rare sight in most places, but not at Gersel Cove. This California icon survives and thrives at Salt Point. And while I didn't visit one of these days, occasional minus tides bring extremely low water levels and possible sightings of species such as octopus, large crabs, and nudibranchs. Not every shoreline you'll encounter along the north coast will be quite so rich in life. Gersel Cove benefits from being protected both legally and by its rocky walls that blunt the force of incoming waves. But every rocky beach will be a cornucopia of animals and algae. The same cannot be said for another common type of shoreline along the coast that, while it tends to be very appealing for our land-based species, is often deadly to marine life. Point Reyes National Seashore is less than 40 miles from the heart of San Francisco as the gull flies, but this huge headland on the Marin County coast feels incredibly remote. I visited on a cool, breezy May afternoon, and surrounded on three sides by choppy seas, blasted by wind amplified by the point's steep cliffs, I felt alarmingly like I was out at sea on a storm-tossed ship. Not far offshore, though entirely invisible from land, is the undersea island of Cordell Bank I mentioned in the final episode of last season. Safely below the reach of the waves and bathed by the waters of the California current, it's an oasis for sea life, but conditions ashore were a clear reminder of just how exposed to the elements life in shallower water can be. This is especially true along the beach stretching north from Point Reyes. Running straight as an arrow for over 11 miles from the point is the sandy expanse of Point Reyes Beach, often, and for very understandable reasons, referred to as the Great Beach. It's the kind of place that would make a fantastic day out in nicer weather, and the kind of beach that most people probably think of when they think of the California coast. But while they may be great places to surf or sunbathe, sandy shores are the least hospitable of all natural environments along the north coast. Solid footholds for seaweed or sessile animals are few and far between, 
and the flat, shifting surface offers nowhere to hide and minimal opportunities for tide pools to form. Worse, there's the added danger of being buried in the soft sediments that make up the beach. The animals that have evolved to survive on these demanding shores have nearly all independently hit on the same winning adaptation, burrowing. The best way to make a living in sand is to dig into it, emerging only at high tides when conditions are safer and food can be found. If you visit any sandy beach on the north coast, you're more likely to find shells of its resident animals than to see those animals alive. Clams are especially common, and you'll find a diversity of clam shells at Point Reyes. Some, like the sleek razor clam, are outstanding diggers, burrowing faster than any would-be predators, including humans, can keep up with. You may also spot the odd burrowing snail or worm, but my favorite denizen of the sandy shore is the mole crab. Looking more like a squat shrimp, shells of these crustaceans are a common sight all along the Pacific coast. At high tides, they'll stick their heads out of their holes and frantically filter food out of the water using their segmented legs. It's a fantastic sight, though sadly one you're only ever likely to see in an aquarium. The fundamental truth of life on these beaches is that its most interesting moments take place either underwater or underground, making it hard to observe firsthand. Same is not true, however, along the shores of the inland side of Point Reyes, where protected bays and estuaries support much more diverse ecosystems. The sublime view from the west side of Point Reyes is what draws most people to the national seashore. But from an ecological point of view, it's the bays visible from the eastern viewpoint that truly make the place special. Similar protected bays abound in the region, from Bodega Bay in the north to Bolinas Lagoon in the south, and including Tomales Bay, the flooded valley that formed along the San Andreas Fault. Most are estuaries, locally often named using the Spanish word estero, and all are well protected from the ravages of the open ocean. Like all estuaries, they benefit from the mingling of fresh and salt water and the nutrients carried by each, which makes them important breeding areas for marine life. In fact, the major bays within the national seashore, Limantour and Drake's Asteros, are closed in the spring to protect pupping harbor seals, which also inhabit Bolinas Lagoon, where they can easily be observed from the road. These are also important breeding grounds for two species of cartilaginous fish, leopard sharks and bat rays. But the bays shelter huge numbers of species that hang around all year as well. Without extreme waves, small sediments are able to settle to the seafloor, forming extensive mudflats. As with sandy beaches, much of the action here is underground, where clams and worms in particular are abundant. You may not see much more than the tops of their burrows, but you'll certainly spot the large numbers of shorebirds, particularly plovers, stilts, avocets, and sandpipers of all shapes and sizes that flock here to probe the holes for food. At low tide, you may also notice beds of one of the most important species in these estuaries, eelgrass. Specializing in muddy bays, this seagrass grows in large undersea meadows that shelter small fish, crabs, mollusks, and many other animals. If you're able to, a kayak or canoe paddle above an eelgrass bed is one of the best ways to experience the diversity of life that thrives in the cold waters of the North Pacific. 
Just be sure to keep an eye on the tide, as it's distressingly easy to get stuck on a mudflat by a quickly retreating tide. That isn't to say the shallows aren't worth exploring, though. Far from it, because it's here that you can begin to cross the blurry line between land and sea that mirrors that of rocky shores. In the expansive salt marshes of Point Reyes, land rises very slowly up from the bay, creating a gradual transition from habitats bathed almost entirely in salt water to those that are firmly rooted in terrestrial soil. Just as the highest reaches of a rocky beach are particularly harsh for marine life, land-living plants often struggle in salty environments. Some species, though, are able to handle it one of three ways. By keeping salt from entering their roots in the first place, by sequestering it in specialized cells where it can't damage the main body of the plant, or by disposing of salt crystals as quickly as possible. The most abundant and specialized of these salt-tolerant plants is pickleweed, which has strong barriers to salt entry in its roots, and pumps the salt that does make it across into segments of the tips of its stems that turn red and fall off once they've accumulated enough salt. Supposedly, these salty segments are what gave the plant its name, but I've never tasted one to put this to the test. As you head up from pickleweed-rich salt marshes towards the nearby hills, plant communities start to look more and more like normal terrestrial ecosystems, as salt becomes less of a problem and fresh water becomes more and more abundant. You'll head first into coastal prairies, where salt spray is common and fresh water is still hard to come by, where grasses, those toughest of land plants, dominate. Then, into the more well-watered coastal scrub, where shrubs like coyote brush begin to take over. Finally, on the high ridges of the park where fog and rain from incoming weather systems deposit large amounts of water, you encounter your first big trees. Bishop pine in the drier north, Douglas fir in the moister south. These conifers are fairly distant cousins of the huge redwoods with which we started this episode, but just like them, they exist here in large part because of the California current and the weather systems it creates. And just like redwoods, the national seashores Bishop Pine and Douglas fir exist at one end of a continuum with dry land on one side and the open ocean on the other. This continuum is the most straightforward of the California current's impacts to observe, since you can do so without getting your feet wet. But the most profound of these impacts affect the marine side of this spectrum. It's rare to be able to observe these effects close to shore. In fact, a truly remarkable bay a little further south along the current's path is one of the very few places on our planet where you can do so. And it's to that bay and its complex seafloor and ecosystems that we'll be traveling in our next episode. Thanks for joining me on this second part of our Voyage with the Current. If you're as enchanted with the California coast, or really any coast, as I am, I hope you'll join me in a couple of weeks as we head further south to Monterey Bay to make sense of how exactly an offshore current can support some of the most diverse marine communities on Earth. And if you're enjoying this series, please be sure to rate, review, like, and subscribe on the podcatcher of your choice. And please tell any friends who you think might enjoy journeying through the submarine wonderland of the Golden State. Once this series is finished, I'll be posting all the relevant information on our website, voyagepod.wordpress.com, where you can start planning a trip of your own. While there, you can contact me with any questions, comments, or episode suggestions you might have. You can also learn about the music featured in each episode, which this week was a collection of works by California musicians from the golden age of West Coast jazz, Denny Zeitlin and Dave Brubeck, 
as well as a couple of more recent artists, Alex Degrassi and Tom Rainey. Those last two artists are still active, and if you enjoyed the guitar piece introducing the flow of the Klamath River, and the spare percussion that set the stage for the bleak majesty of Point Reyes, you can find their work on your preferred music app. Just as Steelhead braves sea lions and strong currents to return to the Klamath River, I hope you'll join me again in two weeks, and for all the voyages to come. Mm -hmm.